Psalm 119, verse 98 says, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. It's interesting to me that uh, oftentimes a simple Christian with just a Bible, no theological education, knows more, not just more, but much more than professors of theology from liberal universities and sometimes uh, evangelical universities going liberal, uh, than these professors who know all of the languages and spend literally all of their time reading the Bible. How could that be? How could it be that just the average Christian reading Genesis 1 could know much more than many professors reading Genesis 1 trying to make it say everything but that God created the world and created humanity in his image? How is that? Well, it's usually based on presuppositions. Is these first principles. It's not that we're smarter than them, but if you get the first principles right, then your conclusions are a lot more likely to be right than if you get the first principles wrong. Put it differently, if you get the first principles wrong, then your conclusions are almost certainly going to follow the same path and be wrong. And one of the first principles that unbelievers uh, often get wrong is not understanding that the Bible is truly the inerrant Word of God, that there are many, many books of the Bible. The Bible isn't one book. It's a library of books, 66 books to be exact. There's many different authors and many different times and many different languages, but ultimately this is one cohesive story written by one author, and if we get that right, then we can search the depth of the scriptures to try to find out the truth about any one matter, and that's what I seek to do tonight is to go throughout the Bible on a certain topic that we'll get to and see if we can plumb the depth of the whole scriptures to see what the whole Bible has to say about this topic. Now, we may not ultimately agree on all of the conclusions, but who knows, maybe in six months I might not agree with all of my current conclusions, but hopefully we both can agree and all of us can agree that the Bible is the final authority in all all matters of faith and practice and at least the principle that we can search the entirety of the scriptures to see what it says to inform ourselves of the truth will be agreed upon. So with that being said, please open your Bibles to Jude. Jude, the first chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16, but we're probably going to be focusing primarily on verse 13. Jude. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain 
advantage. So we continue our study of this little glorious epistle of Jude. I think one of the reasons I love Jude so much is the same reason I love the little book of James so much. It's because I can just smell Jesus all over it. I got saved off of reading the Sermon on the Mount, and that's kind of the foundation of my Christian thinking. And so the book of James and the book of Jude seems to be so much seeped in that Sermon on the Mount that it's just so glorious. It's so hard-hitting. It's the truth that people don't want to hear. It calls it out like it is. So we're going to pick up on verse 13 as Jude continues to describe his opponents, the wicked, the apostate, the unbelievers, the false believers. He has previously described them and likened them to hidden reefs, shepherds, who feed only themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless and uprooted trees, and the raging sea that casts up disgusting sea foam. Now one thing that I just love about all of these images taken from creation is hopefully they kind of plant a memory device in your brain. Hopefully as you see waterless clouds, or even hear the term waterless clouds, you remember the sermons that we have discussed here and think about these false believers. Right? Hopefully there's an attachment. He's bringing connections between creation and these false believers that can help us to remember these things. So now we come to the final description that Jude gives of the false believers. He describes them in verse 13 as wandering stars. Now what exactly does this expression refer to? When is the last time you referred to something as a wandering star? I have never referred to anything as a wandering star. Not exactly sure what this expression refers to. So when you don't know what something looks, something is, the best thing to do is look at your notes. Go into the commentaries. And there are three different interpretations that are given for this expression in the commentaries. The first is that it refers to planets. It's said that the ancients found that these celestial bodies, namely the planets, were unreliable guides, and hence they were thought of as wandering stars. They could not be trusted for navigation like other stars. Some of you are seamen, so maybe you understand following the stars for navigation. I don't, but apparently people have used the stars to follow uh, them to get to their location. But apparently you do not want to follow planets. They won't get you into the right place. The second interpretation is that this refers to shooting stars or comets. And the third interpretation is that it refers to fallen angels. Now let's look at the merit of these interpretations, or lack thereof, one at a time. Now the first interpretation was the planets, and this interpretation is certainly possible, since it is true that planets, according to the experts, not me, are not reliable guides for navigation. And in the same way, these false prophets are not reliable guides. The longer that a seaman were to try to use these false stars as their guides, the farther and farther the seaman would get adrift from the path that he intended to go. Eventually, if he continued to follow this unreliable guide and did not recognize the disaster, the, sea would, the ship would go so far that it would be unrecoverable. And eventually, it would run out of supplies and the ship would be lost to sea. Well, in the same way, if we ourselves follow unreliable guides, we too will go to drift. You can think about that glorious book, Pilgrim's Progress. Wasn't that one of the main plots of that story? 
that there was a, a narrow path, there was a, a way that they were supposed to go, and if they went off of that path onto an unreliable guide, they would get into all kinds of trouble. And oftentimes, when they would go there by God's grace and by God's grace alone, he would turn them around and they would come back. And often when they would go to these other paths, they would find dead pilgrims there. If you think about it, in some ways, that's the story of our lives. The story of our lives is following the path and then drifting off. But by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, where other false believers died and never came back, God, by his grace, brought us back. We should not boast in that. We should be thankful that God has saved us from these false paths that were dangerous and could, in fact, kill us. Ultimately, if we go too far, though, like those false pilgrims in Pilgrim's Progress, we will die in our sins, and we will eventually be lost forever in the gloom of eternal hell. So in light of this, let me ask you this simple question. Who is your guide? Who are you following? Are you following Jesus Christ, and are you following his teaching? Or rather, are you following your own desires, passions, pursuits, and hobbies? Or maybe even the course of this world. If you continue to follow after these things, you will not only suffer ruin and loss and pain and misery in this life, but if you perpetually follow these things without turning back, it will lead to disaster and eternal ruin. While Jesus Christ, if you follow him, the true morning star, you will find yourselves on the shores of eternal life. And this reminds me of Joshua twenty four fifteen, where he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that who served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what I like about that passage, particularly, I don't want to get too much into tangent, it didn't just say, as for me. He says, as for me and my house. Hopefully, you feel the same way. It's not an option for your house to serve the Lord. Me and my house will serve the Lord. We will resolve not to follow false guides that in the end will destroy us. Jesus said, can the blind lead the blind? No, they will both fall into the ditch. Jesus is the true morning star. He's the true light of the world. If we follow his ways, we'll be blessed in all of our ways. So we see that this interpretation of wandering stars as these planets that are unreliable guides work quite well conceptually. Theologically, conceptually, it works quite well. The problem for me is linguistically. I see no reason to think of a wandering star as a description of an unreliable planet. I never refer to planets as wandering stars, and I don't know anyone else who does. Now, I'm certainly not the original audience, but it seems to me that the commentators would have to have an overwhelming case to convince me that the original audience would have understood this phrase as referring to planets. And as I looked in the commentators, I don't see that case being made. And hence, I must reject this interpretation based purely on linguistic grounds. The second interpretation is that it refers to shooting stars. Now, this has the advantage that the other one did not have, namely linguistic reasons. We, to this very day, refer to those lights that fly through the sky and disappear as shooting stars. We recognize this language. This is phenomenological language. It's describing things as they appear. And it makes sense to me that people would refer to shooting stars or these meteorites, or whatever those flying light things are going in the sky as wandering stars. And so it works very well linguistically. It also makes sense theologically. Christians are called to be heavenly lights. We are called to be stars in 
the metaphoric sky. And we see this explicitly mentioned in Philippians 2.14. There it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we are called to be these lights. We are called to be these stars up in the sky that give light to a crooked and twisted generation. If you think about it, what do stars do? Stars are guides and stars provide light. And these are the two things that Christians are called to do. We're called to be guides and we're called to be lights. Jesus says in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. Jesus was the light of the world, and when he left, he passed the mantle onto us. And now we are called to be lights of the world in the exact same way that stars are called to be lights in the dark sky. And in the same way, Christians are also to be guides. When you think about evangelism, what is evangelism? We pray for evangelism. We pray for evan- evangelist. But what is evangelism? But well, one person has famously said, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's encouraging. I was just talking about this. I was talking to somebody, and they were talking about how someone's life is all messed up. And, of course, I told them, well, point them to the light. Point them to the wells of living water to fix their life. But I was telling it to someone who's, Their life wasn't perfect either. Their life was not great either. And so I kind of knew that they would be hesitant to kind of share because they can't say, look at me. Because you really can't look at them because they're not doing the right thing. They can't say, join me at church because they're not even attending church. You see? See the problem? Kind of the hypocrisy problem. But I wanted to encourage them anyway to say, you don't have to say, follow me, but you can say, follow Christ. I've been there. I've seen that they have bread there. Yes, I am not going there right now, but I too need to go there, and you need to follow me there as well. That is what evangelism is, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So this is how Christians are called to be stars, called to be lights, called to be guides, and we're called to shine. As a guide, we are to be one giant sign pointing to Jesus and pointing people to the well of eternal life. Now, hopefully, you're not a bad sign, sign with dirt all over it, needs to be wiped. But if you are, you still point to Jesus and say, he is the solution. Yes, I have dirt on me, and I need to go there too, but he is the solution. You should always be pointing to Christ. But these false teachers are a corruption of all of these things. They're not lights, but false lights. They're not guides, but false guides. They're not a path, but a false path that leads to nowhere. Or put differently, it would be good if they led to nowhere, but in fact... It's worse than that. They don't just lead to nowhere, but they lead to a pit and a snare, and they lead to death and destruction and pain and misery. Well, this is what these people are. They're not stars, but they're wandering stars. They're shooting stars that appear for a moment. They offer promise, but in the end, they are headed to nothing but darkness. They appear so brightly in the beginning, but then they disappear. And that's exactly how the wicked are. They have these good ideas. They have these good philosophies. They have these solutions to the world problems, and it looks good. And then it's empty, and it disappears, and then the next thing comes. And everyone forgot about the old thing, and the next thing comes. They offer 
They look like they offer much, but in the end they offer absolutely nothing. They burn brightly and then utterly disappear. So this interpretation works for me. Linguistically, it makes sense of what people would describe shooting stars as wandering stars, and it works very well theologically. It also works very well contextually. In this section, Judas has been making all of these parallels to creation. Again, hidden reefs, fruitless trees, raging seas. So it makes sense. Now he's pointing to the stars and saying, well, we can also see that the false believers are like, well, those shooting stars up there. And for these various reasons that we've already discussed. So this works in a whole bunch of different ways. In fact, this works really well contextually that he'd be talking about cosmological stars and not referring to angelic beings. So this leads to the final interpretation of this phrase, wandering stars, as referring to fallen angels. Now let's start off here a little bit differently. Let's start off with the difficulty. Well, the difficulty was the strength of the last position. If we're going to take this as angels, it's very difficult because contextually he's been talking about all these things of creation. It's kind of strange for him just to randomly start talking about angels. Secondly, while it's true that angels can be referred to as stars, this metaphorical usage is usually brought out by context. It's usually very, very clear when contextually he's talking about an angel as a star and not an actual cosmological star. And this is not apparent here at all for all the reasons I just gave for the second interpretation. To give two biblical examples of when the Bible actually does refer to angels as stars, we see one in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. There it says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Well, very clearly, a cosmological star is not a he, and he's certainly not given a key to a pit. Very, very clear that star here refers to an angelic being. Or another famous text, Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. Once again, stars don't talk. Very, very clearly, this is a reference to a metaphorical use of star. And many people, including myself, believe this ultimately refers to Satan himself. But in the case of Jude, we have seen that the literal meaning of wandering star being a cosmological shooting star, in fact, makes very, very good sense. And thus, this interpretation is highly weakened. So the question is, can we just knock off this interpretation? We clearly see that doesn't work very well contextually or linguistically, so can we simply get rid of it? Unfortunately, I don't think we can. I think there's actually some merit to this interpretation. So let's look at the passage again, verse 13. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now I want you to do is I want you to look back to verse 6. Jude verse 6. Look what it says there. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, the parallels between these two verses are absolutely striking. First, stars correspond with angels. We've already seen that. The Bible can use stars refer to angels. Second, the word wandering corresponds with not staying within your own abode. What does it mean to wander except to, this is where you're supposed to be. Some of you soldiers or military men know what I'm talking about. This is your post. You left. You wandered. That is what it means to wander. And that's what these angels are described as, as wandering away from their position and from their post. Now, consider also the punishment of both groups. This is a little bit obscured by the English translation, 
But verse 6 of, of Jude, regarding the fallen angels, says they are kept in eternal chains. Okay? The literal Greek in verse 13 says that there are wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been kept forever. Same word in both places. Both are kept for something. Notice also the description of the place of punishment. Verse 13 describes it as a place of gloomy darkness. That is the place that is kept for the wicked apostates in verse 13. Verse 6 describes the imprisonment of the angels as he kept them in chains under gloomy darkness. Now, what's very interesting about that word gloomy there is that it is an extremely rare word in the New Testament. It only shows up five times. Five times in the whole Bible. And four of those times are two in this passage, two in the parallel in 2 Peter, and one in a just not related passage at all. Now, all of these points of connection between these two verses cannot simply be coincidence. There's too many connections. They're too close. There's no way that this is merely accidental that he's describing the fallen angels in verse 6 in almost the exact same language as the false believers in verse 13. And thus, we seem to be at somewhat of an impasse because there are very strong reasons to see the wandering stars in verse 13 to be referring to shooting stars. And yet there are also very, very good reasons to see the wandering stars in verse 13 as parallel to the wandering angels in verse 6. So what shall we do? Well, I think this is a case of a double entendre, meaning that Jude is in fact expecting us to see both meanings in this text. He wants to draw a connection between cosmological stars and he wants to draw a connection between them and the fate of the demons. And if you don't know what a double entendre means, it just means a double meaning. And there's actually a famous example in Homer's Odyssey. There was this hero that was captured by a cyclops. And the cyclops asked him, what is your name? And he said his name was, uh, well, I'm not going to say the Greek, but in the English it's equivalent to no one. What is your name? My name is no one. So then at the night, no one stabs the cyclops in the eyeball. The cyclops is crying out in pain because his eyeball has been stabbed. He's blinded. And the other cyclops say, what's wrong? And the cyclops says, no one has hurt me. And so they all assume that he must have hurt himself because no one has hurt him, allowing the hero to disappear. This is a great example of a double entendre. And I think that's exactly what's going on uh, in our case, is that Jude has intentionally connected these false prophets with both cosmological stars and is drawing a parallel between their fate and the fate of these wandering demons. And this shows us the literary genius of Jude and also the masterful depth of the Bible. It's been once famously said that the Bible is so shallow that children can swim in it. Children can understand its basic message. They can understand John 3.16 and the beautiful truth therein. But it's so deep that we as Christians can continue to study it forever without getting to its depth. It's so deep that even an elephant can drown in its depth. And so I think there... This verse is a double entendre. He's playing off both sides. Now, before we move on from this passage, let's consider consider a few other things that we see here. Let's consider now the punishment that is promised in the passage. The punishment for the wicked is described as the gloom of darkness that has been reserved forever. Now, this punishment, let's look at its duration. How long is this punishment? 
Well, it is forever. The punishment of sins is eternal. And this is in direct parallel with the, punish, with the glories of paradise. And we're running out of time quickly here, so I'll just remind you of Matthew chapter 25, which describes two groups, and one will enter eternal life, and the other will enter eternal punishment, which is described as the eternal fires of hell. The duration of hell is as long as the duration of heaven, or more accurately, the durations of the new heavens and the new earth. Just as the righteous will be with God forever in paradise, so the sons of the wicked one will be apart from God for all of eternity. They will be with the devil, and we will be with God. Now, real quick here, in the book of Revelation, verse 25, we have this glorious picture of the gates of heaven, the gates of paradise, will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Now, some have wanted to have hope that this gates being open means that people can go out of hell and one day walk into heaven. The gates are open so that if you merely repent, you can leave hell and go into heaven. Well, unfortunately, that's not what that text is saying at all. It's actually saying quite the opposite. The gates of heaven will be open forever, not because people can go out of hell and enter into heaven, but rather because they'll be so neutralized over here in hell that we will never have to worry about them. We never have to worry about them escaping hell and ruining heaven, ruining the new heavens, new earth. Hell is forever, people. Hell is a long time to be wrong and a long time to be right. So let's live our lives not for the dot but for the line. Have you ever seen that illustration? But the dot is our life here, and the line is eternity. Let's live for the line, not the dot. Let's make sure that we're not wrong about eternity because the consequences are so great. Also, let me point this out, is that everything looks different in light of eternity. The misery, the pain, the circumstances that we go through here look so much different in light of the line when we see the line. When we see that, think of the psalmist who was talking about how angry he was because the wicked were prospering and all the rest, and then he went into the temple, and then he saw the end of the wicked, and everything looked different. Right? Let us look at our lives in light of eternity and not merely the fleeting moment. Almost all sin feels good in the moment and it hurts as time progresses. And that is the way it is. So that is the duration of hell. It is forever. Don't let anyone steal that from you. Don't let anyone try to soften that. Hell is forever, just like heaven is forever. Now let's, just, let's look at the condition of hell, the condition of the wicked. They are described as being under the gloom of darkness. Or if you have the New King James or some other translation, it describes them as in the blackness of darkness forever. Now, both of these descriptions describe the dreadfulness of hell. It is a terrible place of overcast and misery, perpetual darkness. The worst movie that I ever watched was a movie... I can't remember the name. I should find it out because I reference it a lot. It was a movie where the whole theme was a man was stuck in a box. He was buried underground. And for two hours, me and my wife sat in the movie theater in a dark room where a man was in a box. And he was just in misery in the box for two hours. It was the most miserable and horrific experience. But I actually am glad I watched the movie. To use this analogy. It's horrible. I vicariously felt like I was trapped in a box for two hours. Thank God I actually wasn't trapped in a box for two hours. The point is, a lot of people's worst nightmare would be, in fact, to find themselves buried on the ground, trapped in a box for long periods of time. And that's what's being described here. Total darkness. Total gloom. If you ever watch horror movies, or maybe even Lord of the Rings, you'll usually find that the bad guys, or the people being tortured, are down in some gloomy dungeon. Some place way far away from the sun. 
And that's horrible because that's the fate of the wicked. They won't be out there with the beautiful sun and God's glorious creation, but down in a dungeon in darkness. It's absolutely torture to think about being in extended times of utter darkness, and that is the fate of the wicked. Alone, lost, cast out. Jesus describes it this way. He says that I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So us in heaven will be having a party, those Baptist potlucks I was talking about, forever, together. While the sons of the kingdom, those are the apostates, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll be laughing, celebrating in the glory of God's light. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness. I like to tell my children that uh, something that my eighth grade teacher used to tell me. He used to, I was a very bad student. He said, if you keep messing around, you'll be on the outside looking in. And one time, he actually did this. He had me stand out of the classroom, put my nose on the glass door and just look in as they were all having fun and I was sitting on the outside. It was not fun. And I always said that to my kids. You keep messing around, you're going to be outside looking in. Maybe you should tell your kids this too. Well, this is actually quite biblical. That's what we have here. You're going to be on the outside looking in. You're going to be on the outside wishing you were part of the party, but you're cast in the outer darkness. The outer darkness, the idea here is there's an inner light. I want to be with the inner light, not in the outer darkness. That is the fate of the wicked. Quickly, uh, let's look at the certainty of the punishment. It has been reserved forever. God will not change his mind. God has already appointed that the wicked, those who refuse to repent of their sins, he will most certainly place in this place. He has reserved it. He has kept it. He has your name over it. Not because you can't go to heaven, but because if you unchangeably reject his grace, he will not change his mind about sending you to hell. God will not change his mind about sending the wicked and the, those who refuse to repent to hell. But God can change his mind about you. What do I mean by that? He can change his mind from viewing you as a sinner to you now as a saint. And that's the gospel. You as an enemy and now as a friend. We see that in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God's not going to change his mind about the punishment of the wicked, but God can change his mind about you by repenting of your sins and going from a sinner to a saint, going from an enemy to a friend. Isn't that wonderful? God can de- declare you as righteous. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were all children of wrath, but now we're children of God. Now we're children of grace. By repenting, we can be saved from our sins. God will not change his mind about the wicked. They will most certainly go to hell. We'll conclude with the wonderful gospel proclamation found in Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Bless are all who take refuge in him. This doesn't have to be us. As we look at the fate of the wicked, as we look at a place of darkness and gloom, of terror, of being cast out forever, this does not have to be us. All we have to do is listen and obey the exhortation of the gospel. To believe, to trust, to repent. All who confess Jesus Christ will be saved. Have you confessed Jesus Christ? And if you have... Praise the Lord, because everything looks different in light of eternity. 
and go proclaim this message to others. There's still yet people who need to hear. Remember, the very fact that we're here means that there's still God's elect out there. Now you go find them. You go preach to them. You go be used by God to save them. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we will never be on the outside looking in. Ultimately, sometimes we feel that way in this life, but it will never be true for all of eternity, Lord. Help us to look at the horrors of hell and be frightened. The fear of the Lord is a good thing, Lord. Help us never to lose the fear of you. Help us to see this terrible fate of the wicked and run from it, Lord, and run to you and thank you that you have saved us from that. They deserve it. We deserve it too. Help us to live in light of the grace of the gospel. He who has been forgiven much loves much, and we have certainly been forgiven much. Help us to remember that always. Praise in Jesus' name.